In 2017, I located a box of my late grandfather's memoirs. My sister Justine took it upon herself to organize his quirky tales. We felt a podcast would do his stories justice. While we didn't know him very well, through his words we have connected with our grandfather in a way like never before. His extraordinarily ordinary memories live on. I'm Janica, and together with my sister Justine, we are the proud granddaughters of Ernest J. Hamer Jr. And you're listening to The Unimportance of Being Ernie podcast. You'll hear a conversational style approach with storytelling and a few Australian history lessons sprinkled in along the way. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) How are you all going today? Uh, Jen, Uh, take it from (laughs) you. Sure. We actually have a great chapter. Uh, I think this one will be interesting coming up called Tourism. (laughs) This is chapter number eight. Uh, Justine and I, we were just looking up Red Bank, which is a camp, an historical camp in Queensland, just southwest of Brisbane along the Brisbane River. Mm. So this is really, it'd be interesting to go and visit. Yeah. So I don't know if it was also historical when Grandad was there. So like it's established before him or not, or if it's historical because of the army having been there. (laughs) I guess we'll have to read and do some research. question though yes yeah so So, if you're just joining us and you missed the past episode or you're you've had a bit of a space between the past episode uh our grandfather was he's still in hospital for different reasons after receiving a vaccination and mm. having a bad reaction from it and then more on top of that so he's now at red bank depot which which he says is going to be his experiences will start to be strange, which is why I'm curious to hear this chapter. Yes. Okay. So chapter eight, tourism. The Red Bank Depot was a clearing ground for troops who, for any reason at all, had become separated from their units. Every couple of days, depending on the number of troops at the depot, there would be a parade where, after their names had been called, individuals would respond with the name of their units. Then there would be a query as to where the unit was located. When my turn came and I was asked the location of this 29th Cavalry Commando Squadron, my honest answer was that I did not know. From the ranks on parade, a voice bellowed out, they're on Bougainville. It was news to me. Never once while with the unit had Bougainville been mentioned. However, no one had been obliged to tell me where the unit or indeed the entire division was destined for. It was supposed to be a military secret anyway. Therefore, some clot, name unknown, in the ranks at Red Bank became responsible for my future. (laughs) My name was put down for the first available transport to Bougainville. 
To my delight, I was booked on a flight to Port Mosby in New Guinea. My joy was somewhat shrouded by the news of a nearby plane crash which took the lives of some senior army officers. In some way, the crash altered my schedule and my flight was deferred. There was no, sorry, there were no objections from me. Cairns was quiet, the beer was cold, and best of all, there were plenty of lady blameys available. I think we established that's a type of drink. Was it lady blameys? I forget. No. <laughs> I, you know, I, I thought it was a, a nurse. Oh, no, no. She, he said the real lady blamey. So <laughs> I oh, think something's goodness. named after. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay. All of this debauchery came to a sudden finish when the call came for me to get myself and my gear on a short Sutherland flying boat, which just happened to be going in the general direction of Bougu- Bougainville. Bougainville? Not all Bougainville. the way. Mm-hmm. Bougainville. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not all the way just in the general direction. It was the most pleasant flight as the cabin was nearly deserted. My inquisitive nature made me investigate all aspects of the plane and it soon became apparent the Perspex dome at the bow of the flying boat was the best place for sightseeing. For over an hour, I stayed in that position. As the plane was about to descend, a hand grabbed me by the belt and I was dragged back into the cabin. Evidently, the perspex dome, which covered my lookout position, used to slam violently backwards when the plane hit the water. As the engineer who rescued me said, do you really want to be cut in half? Being ignorant of matters aeronautical, I decided he knew best. The flying boat proceeded to put down and I was offloaded. The place we had arrived was at most unusual. It was the first of the treasury group of islands known as Stirling Island. Stirling Island is a typical coral island complete with lagoon, which made for safe landings for flying boats. The only buildings on Stirling were a few sheds belonging to an American speedboat squadron and some airstrip facilities. There must have been somewhere to eat and sleep because my stay there was for several days. There was another island visible from Stirling Island. It was much larger, hilly, and appeared to be well wooded. It was called Mona, with a question mark. <laughs> and it had been it had been bypassed during the American advance through the islands. According to reports, there were several thousand Japanese troops on Mona Island. They were left strictly to their own devices. My days on Stirling Island were spent swimming, sunbaking, and devouring vast quantities of ice cream, supplied by the courtesy of the American Navy. Oh. All attempts by me to locate the Treasury Islands on a map have proved fruitless. A very large-scale map must be required. The remainder of my trip to Bougainville was uneventful. My memory does not register whether my passport was a flying boat or... Transport. Oh, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Transport was a flying boat or the more usual Douglas DC-3. In any event, it was a flight into trouble. (laughs) At At Torakina on Bougainville, 
oh, saying that word over and over, I think I'm getting tongue twisted. <laughs> At Tarakina on Bougainville, there was a large general details depot. The, the normal activities at this depot would have been similar to those of general detail depots anywhere there were Australian troops. That was the sort that was to sort troops into their units and send them to their proper destinations. On my arrival at the Tarakina depot, there was complete and utter confusion. My arrival had nothing to do with the confusion. The problem was called, caused by the Japanese. The two eighth many months previous, oh sorry, two eighth independent company, Australian commandos, had landed on Bougainville many months previously. Having been cooped up in the Northern Territory for over a year, they had been very keen to tangle with the enemy and had driven deep into the Japanese held localities. They had used well-learned commando tactics and these had impressed the Japanese so much, the Japanese decided to do likewise. <laughs> Suicide squads were formed and Torikina was the target. Their objective was to kill all high-ranking officers and generally create mischief. No officers were killed to my knowledge, but the mischief and confusion was a creation almost beyond belief. The Japanese suicide squads had penetrated through the perimeter held by American troops and had won through to the beach near Torakina. There was not even time for me to have a meal or be allocated to a tent when an officer saw me with a rifle and bayonet and said, you're on guard tonight. It was an unbelievably scary situation. In a strange country, guarding a strange camp, the perimeters of which were unknown to me, with a completely unknown fellow guard doing the rounds on a wet, wet night. A few spells of guard duty eliminated some of the strangeness, but not the dangers. At either end of our patrol area, there were American Air Force bases. As segregation was very much in vogue in the American forces, there were whites on one base and colored men on the other. Both groups were armed with Thompson submachine guns and both groups had different ideas of guard change times. One of our people had the bright idea, which was beautiful in its simplicity. Despite the continuous rain, we turned the brims of our slouch hats up to identify ourselves. It must have worked because none of us were shot at. Many others, mainly Americans, were not so fortunate. It was most disconcerting at one end of our patrol to be confronted with a disembodied white face. Everyone wore camouflage capes, which would demand, who goes there? And at the other end, a pair of white eyes would loom out of the darkness and ask the same question. In due course, all the Japanese raiders, raiders were eliminated and Torakina returned to normal. Normal for Torakina was the flying foxes flying home to roost at half past five in the afternoon, and the rain started to fall precisely at six. That is how it was during my short stay. 
the staff at Tor the Torakina Depot had a much better idea of the two Ninth Commando Squadron's location than the idiots at Red Bank. After the confusion created by the raid had died down, they found a place for me on a plane going to New Guinea. Once the air war in the island Sorry, once the air war in the islands had been resolved, the American Air Force established air ferry services connecting every theatre of operations. The workhorse DC-3s were the backbone of these services. They were a wonderful aeroplane and some of them were still in operation after 50 years. For military purposes, the seating arrangements in the DC-3s was extremely basic. Just bench seats each side of the fuselage. If the plane hit the air pocket, and air, oh my gosh, sorry, Dan. Okay. <laughs> try again. Yeah. Um, if the plane hit an air pocket, all you could do was hang onto your seat. Oh, it must have been a bit scary. Gosh, yes. As we were flying peacefully over the ocean, we did indeed hit an air pocket. It was the biggest air pocket ever experienced by me. An entire lifetime seemed to go by before we leveled out and began normal flying. In the middle of that terrifying drop towards the sea, one of the passengers, a tall soldier, released his grip on the bench seat. He floated in midair for some mid sec for some seconds, not the least bit happy about experiencing zero gravity. Then, as the plane resumed normal flying, he was slammed down to the deck. Ooh. Nothing was damaged except possibly his pride. <laughs> we landed at Port Moresby, and little remains in my memory of my stay there. There was a lacutai. Oh, like a toy with a crab claw sail out on the ocean. The cook at the staging camp had brewed himself a quantity of jungle juice in inverted commas, which tasted of black currants and was sufficiently alcoholic to drive battleships. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rocket fuel. <laughs> there was an entire transport unit being punished for being uncouth to some American woman. She was a Red Cross official, so someone told me. Nothing else remains of my memories of the place. By being staged through Ley and Finsknaven, I eventually arrived at my destination, iTape, which is on the north coast of New Guinea. While being driven to my destination, there were a couple of sites which attracted my attention. The first of these was a native, obviously out of his mind, singing away to himself and jogging around in a circle in the middle of the road. He was completely oblivious to our truck and had to be led gently off the road before we could proceed. According to our driver, the behavior of the native was due to an overdose of beetle nut normally just a mild stimulant. Most natives in the area chewed this narcotic without displaying any ill effects. The happy native we saw had achieved the equivalent of becoming inebriated by drinking ginger beer. Not impossible, but highly improbable. 
The other site which interested me was a sign on a building which was attached to a signals camp. The sign stated in no uncertain terms, no bet over five pounds, no payout over five to one, no all up betting. There was also something about place betting, the gist of which has eluded me. It was very obvious a bookmaker was resident in the camp. It was also obvious he had no intention of going broke as so many service bookmakers did. Cunning punters used devious methods to cripple isolated bookmakers. In its way, the sign was a tribute to the versatility of the Australian Signals Corps. They could pick up the faintest radio signals and make them understandable, particularly on race days. <laughs> I feel and like gambling is the backbone of camaraderie and community in the Australian Army. It keeps them going, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no social media, there's no yes. technology that was advanced like it is today. So what mm. did you do to keep yourself occupied? Exactly. Gambling. Gamble, <laughs> drink, yes. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> oh, well, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what's what's happening in the next chapter because now he's actually out of Australia. He's in New Guinea and out of hospital. <laughs> and out of hospital, yeah. Let's just wait and see, shall we? <laughs> yes it'll be interesting to see what happens from here I I really enjoyed that particular chapter I must say I found a lot of that quite funny I agree with you yes all right well this is a great place to to stop and why don't we yes let's um let's leave it there unless there was anything else you wanted to add no no that was all good and we'll catch you at the next episode lovely lovely bye bye you for listening hit the subscribe button if you'd like access to the newest episodes as they release we love that you want to hear what ernie had to say and he had a lot to say stay tuned for more to come